Police One Academy is leading the way in high-quality, affordable training for officers nationwide. Your department can take advantage of more than 1,000 HD videos and 175 full-length courses in a robust learning management system. Training is certified or accepted for training credit in 35 states. Join the industry's most officer-friendly learning platform with more than 60,000 subscribers. To schedule a free demo, go to policeoneacademy.com forward slash policing matters. Hello, and thank you for clicking, and thank you for listening to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley. Hi, this is Jim Dudley. Jim, um, it's the end of the year. It's our last podcast recording session of 2016. So let's look back at some of the the hot topics, the trends, the things that really transpired in the last 12 months. Um, we'll do a few segments um, for the 2016 year ender. Let's begin with um, you know one of the things that you know has dawned on me, or, and you've brought it to my attention, um, is this, this increase in drug deaths, in particularly uh, opioids. Um, you know, we've, we've, of course, in November, we added three new states to the, to the legalized marijuana um, cadre, so it's up to 25 or 28 states that now have some manner of legalized drugs. Um, we have, um, as you'd pointed out, um, an increase, a huge increase in the number of opioid deaths. You know, it looks like kind of it's almost like anything goes with regard to drug use and, and it's just become so pervasive and, 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 and obviously deadly, right? Obviously. And, and not only is it a, a, uh, deathly consequence to the, the drug end user, but also now we hear about, uh, officers and even canines coming under, um, uh, harmful effects of fentanyl, handling fentanyl and, and other uh, drugs at, um, at scenes. But the reason it, it piqued my interest was um, a recent uh, article in the Washington Post, and they, they talk about a, a CDC, a um, Center for Disease Control report, um, that said heroin deaths surpassed gun homicides for the first time in recent history. And the numbers are huge. Uh, it, it marks an increase of nearly 5,000 deaths from 2014. So in 2015, uh, opioid-related deaths surpassed 30,000 30, 30, for the first time in recent history. Uh, deaths involve powerful synthetic opiates like fentanyl, and those rose by nearly 75% from 2014 to 2015. So we're not just talking about heroin, but we're also talking about abused prescribed drugs, uh, codeine and Vicodin and Oxycontin and things like that. Uh, otherwise, uh, prescribed pr uh, pain meds by, mm -hmm. by physicians. And it, it's always stuck in my craw that the, our, our strategy, our national strategy the last two years seems to have been to give the cops on the, on the back end of the problem, uh, Narcan and Naloxone to save people from overdosing. And it seemed to me to be asked backwards, uh, excuse me, back asswards, <laughs> to, um, to, to give the antidote on the end of somebody in peril. And why can't we go to the, the initial stage of, of the release? And, and I think, you know, our, okay, everybody wants to say that the, our, our drug policy, our war on drugs was a bad idea. We lost. We're, we're raising the white flag and, and the drug war's over. But uh, is it, did, we, did we give up a little bit too soon? I think 
the illegal drugs, the illegal uh, opiates certainly has impact on our population, uh, aside from the, the prescribed drugs. And so what are we doing to control those? Well, we're de decriminalizing them in many states. In California, just this year, we voted to say that all uh, personal possession drugs, any drug, including uh, cocaine and crack and certainly pot and uh, even rohypnol, the date rape drug, that, that all those personal possessions are misdemeanors. And it's been my experience that uh, leaders in police departments are not going to order cops to go out and, and put a lot of effort into making good misdemeanor arrests. I know not a lot of uh, uh, drug commanders, uh, commanders of narcotics um, uh, units are not going to put together operations to, to get all the evidence, gather all the evidence, put out decoys in the hopes of catching people with uh, misdemeanor drugs. And certainly no uh, prosecutor is going to put a lot of resources into prosecuting misdemeanor drug cases. Yeah, it's not good for their career and it's not good use of their time in their view. And, you know, it, it also this thing where, you know, we're working this, as you'd said, at the back end of it with officers with uh, Narcan. You know, that doesn't address the the supply and demand problem. The supply and demand problem is one that, A, we're creating a greater demand by basically legalizing and creating this void, this vacuum where there's no deterrent, there's no um, consequence for possessing these drugs and using these drugs other than putting your life in danger, but no legal consequence, right? Right. And then on the other side, you know, we're... You know, I, we're beginning to really look at, you know, addressing the, the prescription drug epidemic, you know, and having, you know, doctor shopping and all of that mm -hmm. and having better mm -hmm. checks and balances on not having five prescriptions from five doctors to Oxycontin, right? right. Um, we're beginning to get a little bit better with that, but we're not addressing the serious nature of the illegal drugs, the heroin, you know, tar heroin's coming in from all, all over the place. And, and of course, we're creating more supply in the case of, of, of marijuana. We're, we're basically saying you can do whatever the heck you please. You know, you can grow all you like and you can, you know, it, that's just creating an additional strain on, you know, the well-being of the, the citizenry. And some of these things can turn deadly. Right. And it's cheap and it's getting cheaper. So mm -hmm. I remember when uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, the, the actor, overdosed, they said he had uh, dozens of packets of these $5 hits of heroin. $5 mm. hits. Mm. So if you're saying, hey, I can't afford it, um, I don't think that's part of the problem. And don't get me wrong. I am a huge proponent of harm reduction strategies that say, you know, the old uh, days of taking needle kits off the streets or taking condoms from prostitutes. Um, I think that's a bad idea because uh, certainly these people aren't going to stop those behaviors. They're going to continue. So now you have uh, a rise in STDs or you have a rise in um, needle-borne uh, uh, hepatitis and HIV and mm -hmm. and. Uh, these other uh, illnesses and diseases that uh, that don't suit the general population. So, so certainly, um, I think the harm reduction strategy works there. I don't believe uh, we should do wholesale legalization or decriminalization. I don't believe um, that we should build wet houses so that we can set people up mm. and let them drink all they want till they, they drink themselves into oblivion or uh, safe needle injection sites. I'm sorry. I think I think the harm reduction policy line uh, gets put somewhere down on the ground. And to me, uh, to set people up in a drug, a safe drug injection house with a medical 
uh, standby, I, I don't think that benefits anyone. I think the bottom line for me is uh, without, a de- without a consequence, there is no deterrence. Mm-hmm. No consequence, no deterrence. So why are we surprised that we see this major spike in overdoses and deaths? Yeah, I mean, it's really you get what you pay for. You know, we've legislated out, you know, as you'd said, punishment for various possessions, especially here in California, but it's taking place across the country. Um, and and a, a, a de- decrease or a diminishing um, sense of urgency about because as you said you know the white flag has been waved so many places that sure. the war on drugs has has ended and, and in fact it hasn't you know the war on drugs continues it's right. just that we've entered an entirely new phase where it's now almost a political war as opposed to a you know a, a war of of enforcement of a war of seizures a war of, of of working the law and trying to get some of these drug dealers and and some um you know habitual users into treatment and drug dealers into prison, right? Sure. No, I think I think you hit it on the head. If we build it, they will come, mm-hmm. and we built it, and they're coming. So to put it in some some context, um, the CDC report talks about in 1999 there were 8,280 opioid overdose deaths. In 2015, last year there were 33,092. I mean, that's a significant jump. I, I don't have the figures. I don't think the CDC's put up, put up figures for 2016, but I would imagine we're going to eclipse that number. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, as we end 2016, you know, we look forward to 2017, and, and hopefully we can, we can bring some sort of change to this horrible problem. Hello, and thank you for clicking, and thank you for listening to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley. Hi, this is Jim Dudley. Jim, one of the foundations on which this country is built, and one of the greatest attributes that we have as, as a culture, as a society, is our ability to um, to speak out, to have our voices heard. And in some, it's, you know, the First Amendment is, you know, the right of free speech and assembly, right? Right, absolutely. So the First Amendment was put into place, of course, by our founding fathers, and it reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And I think that's pretty clear. Americans hold dear our rights of free speech and expression of religion, the press, and the right to peaceably assemble. And I think it's important to stress peaceably assemble. And you just now jumped to some of the thoughts that I had had as I was looking back on 2016. Um, It started really, frankly, in 2014 following Ferguson, where protests you know, we have the, we're calling them violent public demonstrations, but that's not the right name for some of these things. The right word for them is riot, because the word peaceable is not part of the equation. Now, let's go back to a couple of high-profile events this year. In January, the occupation of the Malhauer National Wildlife Refuge left one person dead and several others injured. In February, in Anaheim, California, three people were stabbed and 13 others were arrested during a KKK rally. In March, Donald Trump's um, uh, March 11, um, I guess, rally or meeting, uh, five people were arrested and officers were injured in that. Um, in April, 
in Washington, D.C., sit-ins led to a variety of arrests. In July, of course, now, protests over the officer-involved shootings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile led to 261, at least, arrests in New York, Chicago, St. Paul, Baton Rouge, and Dallas. Now, of course, in Dallas, during that Dallas protest, officers trying to protect people's right to free speech, five of them were murdered. We can go on and on. You've got demonstrations in Milwaukee, Charlotte, Dakota, Access Pipeline, and of course all of the anti-Trump mm-hmm. protests mm-hmm. following the election that turn violent. These, these are not peaceable assemblies. And we're putting our officers in harm's way every time we grant you know, an, a, a permit for these folks to get out there and, and, and conduct their First Amendment rights. But then they turn and throw rocks and bottles and they Molotov cocktails and all of that other stuff, breaking bu- uh, b- windows and buildings. Right. No, and I think I think I know who I'm speaking to. I think I know who the majority of our audience is. And I know I'm speaking to the choir when I ask the rhetorical questions. Is it a right to block streets, entrances, entrances to buildings or shut down freeway entrances and roads? Is it okay to spray paint, break windows, and damage public or private property? Is it okay to start fires in the street, burn effigies, structures, vehicles, buildings, to, de- to loot and destroy businesses, or to assault those with opposing views or to attack law officers on hand to keep the peace? Well, I think we all know the answers to those things. Yeah. And, and the, the reason I stressed the peaceful assembly uh, part of our First Amendment was because I've seen both kinds of demonstrations. I've worked uh, peaceful demonstrations and otherwise as a uh, line officer, as a lieutenant in charge of squads, as a captain in charge of platoons, as a commander and deputy chief in charge of of, uh, companies and platoons of officers. And and I've seen the way the police tend to be the, the focus, the focal point of demonstrators and often the media. And it takes away from the original idea. And in North Dakota, um, to me, um, listening to reports over the last month or so, um, and and I love some of the the news agencies. Uh, I listen to them often, but I was I was really irritated when I heard the lead story that police were shooting protesters with water cannons. That was the lead in the story. And and the more I, I, I researched into it, I saw that uh, some demonstrators had set fires to vehicles. Now, mm-hmm. that was rarely mentioned. It, it isn't mentioned whose vehicles or what kind of vehicles those were. I would suspect they weren't their own vehicles. They were probably those of responding officers or uh, support personnel or maybe even law enforcement vehicles. I can't say at this time. And so what do you use when cars are on fire? Water cannon. <laughs> yeah, or fire hoses. And, then, and that, that was the ir- other irritant that they talk about, a uh, water cannon. Well, uh, I could do an audit, but I, I would doubt that I would find three water cannons across the United States owned by a law enforcement agency. Mm-hmm. So more likely, they are uh, firefighting equipment, fire hoses or or perhaps a uh, a mounted uh, water cannon on a a a fire department fire suppression vehicle only water cannons i've ever seen are on our maritime firefighting vehicles that's the only ones i've ever actually seen you know it's this all started really to me i mean the violent stuff really started in 2014 but you know you go back to occupy and you know for the most part you know those were peaceable assemblies they were wretched mess 
um, you had reports of rapes and fights and what have you, but they weren't directed energy, you know, by a large group towards, you know, in, in violent protest breaking windows smashing stuff now of course they broke all kinds of laws mm -hmm. in terms of um, blocking as you'd said entrances to places um, but you didn't see the violence there I don't think uh, not in San Francisco I, that I, I witnessed. no no there were splinter groups I worked a lot of those demonstrations in 2011 and 2012 and and oftentimes uh, 85 to 95 percent of the crowds were peaceable mm -hmm. uh, you'd get that 10 to 15 percent of black block BLAC BLOC mm -hmm. who come outfitted with hoodies and masks and scarves and backpacks filled with rocks and mm. bottles and sometimes Molotov cocktails, sometimes mm. uh, uh, bottles filled with paint, uh, tennis balls filled, filled with uh, nuts and bolts, uh, hammers. Uh, an officer was hit in the head with a, with a hammer in San Francisco a few mm. years ago after they uh, set fire to his vehicle that he was in. And when he alighted from the vehicle, somebody hit him across the skull with a Jeez. hammer. So we did see the splinter groups. Um, and, and oftentimes the, the main body of the protest um, uh, was vocally opposed to those individuals. But uh, some people just want to see the, the world burn. And, and that's that group. That, that goes and hides within the confines of the large body of demonstrators and then uh, uses guerrilla tactics to create mayhem, uh, break windows, mm -hmm. loot, set fires and things like that. And I think that that's what we've seen a vast increase in. You know, the, the, the interlopers is what the, I've sure. called them in the past. The interlopers have always kind of been there. But that, I just feel like that there's more and they're being more active. They're, they're, they're traveling. You know, they're going from one city to the next, to the next, to the next, mm. to create this mayhem. Um, you know, you saw it in Baltimore. You saw it in, uh, in, in Charlotte. You know, just, the, just this year, those two really awful, um, Portland, even after Trump uh, right. won the election. You know, people, people migrated to, to go there. Uh, they're imports. They're interlopers. Right. They're not residents. Right, the residents right. are the ones that are out there in the street talking about what their grievance is, what their their feelings are, and then it's the it's the splinter groups that are causing all of the fires and the the, the violence and you know and attacking officers. As you rightly pointed out, you know officers become the the focus of the uh, of the media attention and of of some of, some of the protesters. Sure. When whether their original cause was not about law enforcement. Right, right. You know, Dakota Access Pipeline was about, you know, their thinking that it was going to be going through their land and, you know, all that um, against the United States federal government. Yeah, I, and I think that's what it all comes down to. That was where I was going with the, the police end up being the the focal point of the demonstration because they're wearing uniforms, they're representing government. But here you had the North Dakota Pipeline dispute. You had the government entity, you had the uh, private commerce entity, and then you had uh, native uh, community people opposed to the pipeline. And who gets thrown in the middle to be the bookmark until somebody makes a decision? Well, it's mm -hmm. the police. And I'll tell you, oftentimes, uh, cops don't want to be standing online for something that they have no vested interest in. They have no dog in the fight, but they're often put in the middle between 
very emotional or angry groups. Yeah, I mean, you see that when you have annual pro-life uh, rallies or, sure. a, a, you know, annual pro-women's um, rights, if you will, or pro-abortion. And you have both sides, you know, yelling at each other. You saw that with the Trump rallies, you know, and that was in stark effect. You know, when you have those two sides and the thin blue line is the only thing that separates mm-hmm. them um, and keeps them from beating the living daylights out of each other or worse, you know, and then that just puts cops in peril, right? Sure. And, and I tell you, these they know that. So the, the adjutants... Uh, they know that if they get uh, they're banging a drum and they're chanting over and over again, uh, no justice, no peace, that is not going to lead the news. If, however, you see police officers with batons out uh, suppressing a crowd to get to a fire or to break up one group from attacking another, uh, you know, they know that the, the media mob media policy is is something like if it if it bleeds it leads Mm -hmm. so let's see how much mayhem we can create to get our issue on the lead into the six o'clock news and i have in the past written and spoken on the podcast that that is the very definition of terrorism the use of violence or the threat of violence in order to influence a state or a group of people um to cede to your point of view and that's just that's the, the the very definition by the FBI and the Department of Defense of what terrorism is. You know, as we close out 2016 and, you know, we've only got a couple of weeks left, it's getting close to Christmas, um, this being our last podcast recording session of the year, you know, let's look ahead to 2017 and hopefully we don't have this same level of discord and violence in the streets. Here, here. Hello, and thank you for clicking, and thank you for listening to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I am Doug Wiley. Hi, this is Jim Dudley. Jim, um, I'm going to do a quick read of an article I've written. It's due to post uh, on the 27th of this month when we're on our Christmas holiday. Um, This time last year, I wrote about two troubling trends, deadly hesitation and de-policing, which stood out as the most important developments for law enforcement in 2015. I wrote that, quote, if deadly hesitation and de-policing continue to become more prevalent, some places in this country are in peril of becoming at least more dangerous, if not downright lawless. I wrote that, quote, in cities populated by emboldened criminals and demotivated cops, the innocents will be the ones who suffer, and that if these troubling trends of deadly hesitation and de-policing continue, a year from now, we may be writing about 2016 as the year of the criminal. So, was 2016 the year of the criminal? The answer is complicated, multifaceted, and perhaps even unsatisfying. Simply said, a dialectic yes or no just won't do. The answer to the question is, it depends. In New York, violent crime is statistically about the same according to most recent available numbers. In Chicago, it's another story. More than 4,000 people have been shot, at least 50% increase over last year, and an estimated 742 of those people shot in the Windy City have died. While Final data are not available for the entire year. That information will likely become available in January or February. According to a mid-year report released by the Major Cities Chiefs Association, the number of murders in 29 of the nation's largest cities, 29 of the nation's largest cities, rose during the first six months of 2016. And while no statistics are kept for whether or not police have pulled back on proactive policing, there appears to be anecdotal evidence that such a drawdown is taking place. For example, on Police One, on our homepage, we recently posed the question, quote, have you pulled back on proactive police work? 
two-thirds of the respondents said they are. 67% said yes, 33% said no. Um, it's, it's impossible for us, Jim, even because, first off, because we don't have this year's final numbers, and we won't for a while. Um, and it's, it's really very difficult for us to say there is a connection between proactive law enforcement being st stopped in some places altogether where, you, you know, firefighters, <laughs> cops have become firefighters answering calls, taking reports and returning to the base um, and not going out and doing proactive things. In New York City, it's interesting to me to see that the murder rate is actually fairly stable, um, given the fact that uh, stop and frisk stopped uh, roughly January of this year. Um, you know, what do you think? Where where are we in 2016 in terms of act, officers acting on their own volition and trying to proactively approach people and say, hey, what are you doing here on this corner? Yeah, yeah I, I think maybe it's maybe it's the the election that's taken the focus off off law enforcement officers for the moment. Or maybe we're at the peak of this anti-policing sentiment and we're on the downside of the curve. Uh, maybe the pendulum has begun to swing back and, and we're, time will tell, right? Uh, I do believe and, and I read everything that uh, Heather McDonald puts out from the Manhattan Institute. I think she's, um, she's accurate. She's the voice of, of uh, modern law enforcement when she talks to people around the nation. She looks at crime stats and she makes uh, inferences and, and draws conclusions, oftentimes when other people don't want to touch the subject. And she's data-driven. She is data-driven analysis. Right. It's not speculation. It's not, you know, uh, hyperbole. She's actually digging into the numbers. Right. And and the war on cops that came out uh, this year, it's, uh, it's highly successful. I know it's used at some educational institutions as a textbook. Mm. And uh, I think uh, people are starting to hear the other side. Um, oftentimes in the media, you'll hear uh, one-sided conversations about police abuses when people in law enforcement know that, that the numbers are, are significantly uh, small in relation to the number of contacts that law enforcement has on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, millions and millions and millions of contacts uh, you know, on a daily basis ending in no use of force whatsoever. You know, talking people into handcuffs, sure. quite literally. And then, of course, you know, as we've said on a number of occasions, you know, when it comes to the mainstream national media's coverage of law enforcement, if it bleeds, it leads. If it's, mm -hmm. if it's, and I've said this for years, conflict, controversy, and change drive the news. And, you know, you might get stories of courage and you might get stories of compassion every so often, but they're far outweighed and outnumbered by stories about that one incident that, you know, it, let's face it, Use of force never looks pretty, right, ever. Right. Um, and, you know, when you get something caught on camera, and that's why guys and gals out there on the street, I think, are they're more hesitant, that deadly hesitation, what I talked about, to get involved in a, in a contact that might end well, and it might end up with me on the news. Right. And so they're disengaging from some of those proactive activities. And, you know, it's causing, we. I think, you know, this, and I think Heather McDonald would agree, she's got the numbers, I don't. That it's causing this void, this vacuum into which, and nature hates a vacuum, uh, into which you have, you know, the, the, the bad actors feeling like they are, they, they can do anything they please and that there will be no consequence because they're not going to stop me for possessing a drug on the corner. They're not going to, uh, or a gun on the corner, you know? Yeah, no, and, and I've seen, I've seen the people who write in uh, 
to the the podcast uh, on the on policeone.com and often say hey yeah i'm not getting out of my car but i think it does come down to the integrity the personal integrity of the individual officer who no officer in my mind will drive by a situation where they need to get out and act and shame on those that that might or do and uh, I just worry that uh, if the statistics get so out of hand, if they get so askewed that you have uh, crime through the roof and you have um, personal activity at the lowest point, that um, how will uh, leaders and uh, managers of police agencies motivate officers? Will, uh, by law, they can't, in, in many places, most places, they cannot um, institute um, quotas or a quota system, but um, perhaps they'll draw, they'll tie activity into um, reports and activity into promotions or uh, in um, in the highly desirable assignments and things like that. And I hope that's not the case. I hope that um, that we get past this this negative. Um, attitude towards police and that police start to get back out of the cars, reintegrate with the community and make better impact on crime. Yeah, not to draw politics too much into it, but I think that in the past eight years, officers have felt they had no support from Washington, particularly the Department of Justice, you know, where there's consent decrees coming out all over the place. And, you know, the White House, you know, with the famous beer summit flopping as badly as it did. Um, you know, I think when you have a view towards 2017, and I think you could be right, the pendulum may be swinging, that you will see a great, greater level of support for law enforcement from the White House, from the Justice Department, um, and, and maybe a reduction in the perception that if I do something, it's going to wind up not only on the news, but in court, um, both criminal and civil po- potential charges. Mm-hmm. Because I think that, the, you know, as I've written before, some cops have failed to use deadly force when deadly force was necessary and mm-hmm. appropriate and justifiable sure. because they felt they, they feared more the consequence of the event, the aftermath of the event, than surviving the event itself. Sure. We've, and, seen, we've seen those anecdotal videos of officers in great peril because of that. Yeah. And, and I think that my hope is that, that, that 26, 2016, we for sure saw that. You know, we saw many instances this year of different types of, you know, I... I I hesitate to use the word retreat. I hate the word retreat. But there there has been a somewhat of a a retreat. I point to Chicago. There's whole sections of of that city where there is really no proactive policing patrols. Mm. They go as firefighters. They go take a report. They get the heck out of Dodge as quickly as possible. It's happening in Baltimore as well. It's happening in several different cities. And it's upsetting. And it's, it's concerning. But my hope is that perhaps as we go into 2017, that we might see that trend end well i'm i'm hoping that in 2017 that that the leaders of governments and agencies talk to the police officers on the street and and find out what they need and find out where the flaws are flaws in training flaws in tools flaws in tactics i think in in some jurisdictions they've taken away tasers they've taken away uh carotid restraints they often refer to them as chokeholds um, they've taken away um, 
the tactics of shooting at vehicles. I know Chuck Wexler just talked about it, uh, sent in an op-ed to, to San Francisco last week um, in December of 2016 saying police officers should not shoot into vehicles. I, I agree with them to the most part, but I do believe that there are exceptions to every rule. And my fear is if they put together this list of do, of uh, do's and don'ts and they hold officers to these things to the point where they're prosecuting, disciplining, firing officers for um, tactics that they believe will stop someone from being hurt or killed. And then they're, they're being sanctioned by those moves. Um, that's not a good faith effort. And, uh, you know, people will say, oh, that would never happen. But I recall um, our, our own uh, civilian complaint board um, responding to a, a complaint where an officer was rude or used uh, unnecessary force, um, and they found no evidence of either, but sustained complaints based on the fact that the officer wasn't wearing his hat, uh, didn't write out the full violation on a citation, uh, didn't have a baton in their ring, and and really ticky-tacky violations that had nothing to do with the primary complaint. So I hope that government leaders, agency leaders, uh, look a little bit more and put themselves in the shoes of the officer uh, working the beat. Yeah. Well, as we close out the year, let's just look forward to 2017 as maybe being a little bit better than this year. For sure. Hello, and thank you for clicking, and thank you for listening to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley. This is Jim Dudley. Jim, as we look back on 2016, you know, we've looked at a variety of topics, you know, from violent public demonstrations, which in my eyes are really riots. Um, you know, we've looked at, you know, the notion of de-policing in America. We've, we've looked at the incredible rise in deaths from, um, from narcotics. Um, those are all really big, important, um, kind of alarming in some cases, trends. And the one that I think, though, is the most upsetting, the most alarming is the rise in ambush attacks of police officers in 2016. And in fact, this dates back to all the way to 2014. Um, it's a continuation on, a, on a, an awful, um, just a period of time where law enforcement officers are just in great peril just for being in uniform, um, fueling their cars, um, trying to protect peaceful protesters from uh, and, and give them the platform that they wish to, to voice their grievances. Uh, I'm going to do a quick read here. The National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund reported in November that the number of officers shot and killed in ambush attacks was at least 20. Now, that was in November, the highest total since 1995. At the time of this writing, uh, National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund reports that 44 officers been, have been killed in fatal ambush shootings since, uh, since 2014. A number of ambush attacks have claimed the lives of more than one officer in a single incident. Two Palm Springs officers were murdered in an ambush in October. In early July, five officers were killed in Dallas. Three more were killed in Baton Rouge later that month. And finally, it's important to note that not all ambush attacks are fatal. Even when the officer survives an ambush, an ambush is still an ambush. It's unclear how many officers have been shot in ambush attacks and saved by body armor and improved trauma care. We just simply do not have that data. 
We should, but we don't. It's, you know, we're in 2016, you know, just 20 officers ambushed. That's a horrific number. Where are we going as a, as a country, as a society? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I'm hoping that with the, the Leoka report, the law enforcement officers uh, killed in, in action uh, report, uh, comes out with suggestions and, and trends uh, looking at the, the situations that officers are more likely to, to be ambushed. I think it's apparent to us now that officers should have situational awareness out there wherever they are, whatever they're doing. Uh, I saw um, a post recently where somebody brought up a good point about um, not only do you have to have your head on a swivel, but think about places that you're going to, like a drive-through to get coffee or to get a meal. And if you're you're stuck in the confines of a drive-through uh, where you may be boxed in or mm-hmm. there's no other way to, to escape, I mean, that's, you know, that's a... It's a, it's a deadly funnel. That's a, that's a kill box. That's what they'd call that in right. combat. It's a kill box. No, and speaking there's of... There's a car in front of you, a car behind you. That's why convoys are constantly being hit. Yeah, and I, and I haven't seen attacks on officers to that level of coordination, but... You know, the, the thing we have to think about is... I was watching a broadcast the other day about terrorism. You know, we recently had another potential attack. It appears to be um, in, in Germany with a vehicle as the weapon, you know, same as Nice and the same mm-hmm. as in, in Ohio at the Ohio State University campus. Um, what we have to do as, as police trainers, leaders, and, and officers is think more creatively about where the threats lie. Sure. And I think that's to your point, um, you know, where we have a lack of vision into the mind of a person who's hell-bent on killing officers. We have to think back to, and I'll probably mispronounce the name, the Huarte. Uh, it, it was that gang of people in Michigan who said they were going to kill one officer and then use military-style tactics, an L formation uh, uh, of, of gunmen, to gun down officers at the officer's funeral. Hmm. And, you know, that's that's strategy right there. That's yeah. not just tactics. Sure. That's taking and thinking really deeply the way a terrorist would. You know, like, mm-hmm. as it's, as they say, terrorists' only job is thinking about new ways to hurt people. Right. And that's what, you know, some of these cop killers are doing. They're focusing all of their energy on what's the next thing that I can do. Yeah. You know, like hitting Dallas. Sure. And, and I think if, if you have a situation you're going to, uh, you have situational awareness. If you have intel, you, you got to spread that among the officers. Um, what kind of tactics are you using? When I was at the um, IACP in San Diego uh, just in October, um, I sat through an active shooter seminar where they talked about tactics going through a doorway. And I mean, it, it tends to change um, decade to decade. The doorway was you know, known as a death portal, right? If you stay, if you linger at that doorway, you may be the, fo- that's the focus. It's the fatal funnel. Coming through the door, mm-hmm. that's the place, right? So uh, SWAT teams, uh, specialists often uh, jump in a stack, go mm-hmm. through the door, and make a quick entry. Everyone's got an assignment. Everybody's got an area to clear. Uh, this this uh, breakout session talked about um, a pause at the the doorway, and and I would uh, have to recall the the actual um, 
the actual breakout session to, to find out who did it. But they talked about with multiple suspects in the room that if you go through in a stack, you, you're just essentially a shooting gallery yeah. uh, line. And so they, would, they were recommending a pause. Now, I say go with the training that they give you at your own agency on, on whatever you're doing, but be mindful of doorways, certainly on, on entries. Um, situational awareness, uh, 1013 calls, calls uh, of a suspicious nature where you have no idea what you're really going into. I think uh, dispatchers and headquarters need to be involved in training to ask questions, to make interpretations and relay that information to the responding officers. So if they get a suspicious call, uh, rather than just put it out, yeah, suspicious call at this address, um, try to get into the nuances of the call and, and have the call taker relay the information that they deem suspicious. Maybe it's a gut reaction that they can't really articulate, but convey that to the responding officer. Yeah, and in cases such as those, I would argue that not only should you have more information, but you should have more police officers. Yeah. You know, you need to have the the, the decision-making ability to say, I'm not going to go this one alone. Mm-hmm. You know, law enforcement is not necessarily a team sport. It's a lot of solo activity. But there are instances like that where you just don't have enough information yeah. that you, you're putting yourself in a, in a really bad position. You don't have any kind of contact and cover capability. You know, you don't have the ability to, to overwhelm, you know, with with your numbers, mm-hmm. a potential um, attacker, you know, you know, when you look at the number of ambush attacks increasing the way that they have, it has to be, you can't walk around paranoid. Right. You can't be in condition orange. You have to be in condition yellow to be functioning properly. Sure. But you can't let it out of your mind either. And particularly when you go into something where it's like, whoa, this is a little hinky. Something's not right here. Right. Um, or when you you know you go to the known location of a person who's known to violence, you know you, mm-hmm. the frequent flyers. You visit that house once every couple of months. You know mm-hmm. those are the places where eventually that guy's going to say, "I'm not going to jail today." Right. You know, and it could be a domestic. You know, it could it could, it's, a, it's a box of chocolates. You don't know what call it's going to be. Sure. Um, and it could be no call. You know, I mean, when you're standing around fueling your vehicle like that horrible tragedy in Houston, you got to have your head on a swivel. Now that guy. It was an interesting post uh, on Facebook uh, not too long ago where there was a, a police officer fueling his vehicle at a public you know, fuel station. Mm-hmm. And a military veteran walked out of the convenience mark, a market that's adjacent to the fuel station and stood at his six watching his back. And it was a compelling, compelling thing because no one else was there to do it for him. Sure. You know. So I, I just I, I fear for where we're going in 2017 with regard to, you know, these emboldened criminals feeling like it's. It's open season, you know? Yeah. Well, I think we've seen it before. I mean, coming in the department in in the uh, early 80s, um, you know, a lot of uh, ambush or shootouts happened in California and Florida at the time. And um, what did we do? We positioned ourselves um, in, in restaurants if we went for a, a meal break, and we always faced the door. Right. We always looked at uh, suspicious people who uh, wore heavy coats in hot weather. Um, If we knew we were going after a bad guy, uh, you've got a plan. Mm -hmm. Uh, People are aware of the kinds of weapons they've had before. Um, Everybody's wearing body armor. Nobody's going without. So over time, I think we're going to build up um, some of our, our, our 
sort of uh, second line intuitions uh, to fortify ourselves against these kinds of attacks. But in the meantime, yeah, look out for each other, look out for yourself and uh, be safe. Yeah. So, um, Jim, as we close out 2016, um, I want to thank you for everything that we've been able to accomplish here um, together on the podcast. Um, I think that we've gotten uh, a lot of great topics covered. I encourage all of our listeners um, out there, thank you very much for listening to us, um, making us part of your day or your week. Um, We look forward to talking with you again more in the future in 2017. And as we move into the new year, I encourage everyone out there to be safe, um, to take care of each other, um, and uh, oh, and and email us. You know, sure. we want to hear from you. Uh, no, I, I, what a great year uh, 2016's been. I think we're gonna hit it even harder in 2017. Have some pretty good stories to report and topics to talk about and. Believe me, we, we listen and we, we learn from your emails and your comments and suggestions. And uh, this is your show. If you want a topic discussed, send it on up the pike. And that email address is policingmatters at police1.com. That's policingmatters at police1.com. Um, signing off for the year, I'm Doug Wiley. I'm Jim Dudley. Take care. Stay safe.